I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about Shanghai Express, which is a 1932 pre-code film that was directed by Joseph von Sternberg. It stars Marlena Dietrich, Clive Brook, Anna Mae Wong, and uh, Warner Oland. It was written by Jules Firthman, but the story was based on a 1931 story by Harry Hervey. Um, And here's the plot. It's 1931, and China is in the midst of a civil war. A group of passengers board the Shanghai Express, and these passengers include British Captain Doc Harvey, who's played by Clive Brook, a notorious courtesan named Shanghai Lily, who's played by Marlena Dietrich, Hui Fei, who's... I'm probably butchering that, even though we heard it so many times throughout the movie. She's played uh, by Anna Mae Wong. There's a Christian missionary named Mr. Carmichael, um, an inveterate gambler named Sam Salt, an opium dealer, a boarding housekeeper, uh, a French officer who apparently can understand English when spoken to, but doesn't know how to respond in English, um, and the mysterious Henry Chang. In the night, one night, Chinese government soldiers board and search the train and apprehend a high-ranking rebel agent. Later, the train is stopped again and taken over by the rebel army, and its commander, who turns out to be Henry Chang, um, takes Doc Harvey hostage um, to swap for this aid of his that was already uh, kidnapped. Revolution, racial stereotypes, and romance ensue. That was a complicated plot to explain, <laughs> but you did a good job. <laughs> well, when I when we were watching it, I was like, "Oh, uh, there's, there's not much plot to this movie." But as I was trying to figure out what the plot to this movie was, I was like, "Oh, that, there's actually a lot." <laughs> <laughs> I kept stopping and being like, "Wait, what's going on?" <laughs> So I have a little bit of trivia. You mentioned that this is based on the Henry Hervey story, Sky Over China. Mm -hmm. And that was based on a real incident from May 6, 1923, in which a Shandong warrior captured the Shanghai to Beijing express train and 300 Chinese and 25 Westerners were taken hostage. Wow. Um, Although that was apparently like even more dramatic than the story. Um, the movie was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, and Lee Garms was awarded the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for the movie, huh. but um, according to Marlena Dietrich, that award should have really gone to Josef von Sternberg, who basically did the cinematography himself. <laughs> Directed um, cinematography, everything. Yeah. he. I mean, it was lit very very beautifully Mm -hmm. i will say very like i it is pretty rare that i will watch a movie and comment on the lighting and i thought it was incredible at this yeah there are Um, some good 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 shots with good lighting uh it was super popular and it was the highest grossing film of 1932 in the u.s and canada and the hayes office which did like the moral code Mm -hmm. uh, had some concerns about the movie (laughs) And they didn't like that the minister was so unlikable, so they had to revise that character to be a little better. I still thought he was pretty unlikable, but okay. Um, And they also didn't like Henry Chang's remark that he was not proud of his white blood, but Mm -hmm. that line stayed in. Mm -hmm. 
So this was von Sternberg's, uh, it was like his intention to have the whole movie be like a train journey. So even the way the film was like fast moving and the way people spoke like in, and delivered their dialogue was supposed to be sort of staccato like a train moving, which huh. I thought was kind of cool. And this is just a fr throwaway one. I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that this was one of Freddie Mercury's favorite films. <laughs> I feel like that might explain some things, but I... I know. I don't know. Especially, like, thinking about him and Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, who did you bio for this one? Um, I buy, are we taking a break from Marlena Dietrich for a moment? <laughs> yeah, because I have a lot to say about her. <laughs> um, well, I buy an anime Wong. Um, she was born Wong Lu Xiang in January 1905 in Los Angeles, um, to, uh, second generation, uh, Taiwanese, Chinese, American parents. They, she was born in, uh, a Chinese American community, but in 1905, her family moved to a part of Los Angeles where they were the only Chinese people, and that um, was uh, provided some a certain amount of culture shock for her, but also meant that you know she was fully entrenched in you know white American culture. Um, but that also meant that she had to endure a lot of bullying at her the school that she went to um, with her siblings. Um, that move was about the same time that the U.S. motion picture, like, industry moved from the East Coast to Los Angeles, and she, like, being around that industry, um, you know, right where she was living and growing up, um, she just immediately fell in love with the industry and want, knew that that's what she wanted to be a part of. And at the age of 11, she came up with her stage name of Anna Mae Wong, which put together both her sort of anglicized name and her family names. When she was 15, uh, Metro Pictures needed 300 female extras to appear in the film The Red Lantern. Um, and without her father, father's knowledge, um, she sort of, you know, worked her family's connections to get an uncredited role as an extra. Um, and that sort of, like, solidified her, her desire to be in movies and she got her first leading role when she was 17 um, in a two-color Technicolor movie called The Toll of the Sea um, that uh, was based loosely on uh, Madame Butterfly and was sort of the first, but definitely not the last time, where she was cast, like, specifically for her ability as an Asian-American woman to provide some exotic atmosphere for the movie which was sort of an ongoing theme in her life, unfortunately, but doesn't is not unfamiliar, um, hasn't changed very much um, for non-white actors today. So she, you know, she acted a lot before she was 20 in a lot of different movies, and primarily that kind of supporting quote-unquote exotic roles. But as the roles got more prominent, she was able to move out of her family home um, and, you know, in that process had to really deal with the fact that, like, Americans viewed her as being this, like, other culturally and, like, racially, even though she was born in Los Angeles. Because of the limits that um, some anti-miscegenation laws uh, 
like put on her career even over like you know like the day-to-day racism this these laws meant that she could never actually like share an on-screen kiss apparently with any person of another race even if the white actor was playing an asian character which like what yes (laughs) so like i think we'll probably end up talking about warner orland who was swedish but kept playing these asian characters like charlie chan and this character in this movie but, like, she couldn't even, she wasn't even allowed to, like, kiss that guy. And it's just, like, totally screwed. And, like, so very American. She got, eventually, she got tired of having to deal with that. Um, you know, these, like, limitations and being only offered exotic supporting roles. Like, dealt into the, like, stereotypes. And so she uh, left Europe, or, excuse me, left Hollywood in 1928 and went to Europe where she was an instant sensation especially in Germany and just like made a lot of connections in a lot of films until the 1930s when the American studios were looking for fresh European talent and they were like oh Anna Mae Wong and she was like I'm an American what (laughs) 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 but she got a contract with Paramount um in 1930 and um she sort of she was like oh maybe this time I'll get lead roles in top billing, uh, spoiler alert, she did not. She was disappointed again, but, uh, and sort of refused this time around to play any characters that over-the-top stereotypes. Um, she was really trying to, like, stick to her guns, um, and did a lot of stage work during this period, and then, you know, was in, a um, a film with, that was directed by Josef von Sternberg that, was a pretty stereotypical film, but she didn't really have a lot of options. And she, making those kinds of films meant that she got more famous, and she was, she decided she was going to use those, um, like, her platform, basically, um, to be political, um, and to, um, you know, speak out for Chinese-American causes and for better film roles for Asian-American actors, because she was the first, basically, the first, um, Asian-American actor to, like, have any kind of clout in Hollywood, and that was in part due to her role in Shanghai Express. She eventually, you know, that's stressful and disappointing, and so she went back to Britain, um, where she worked, um, steadily for about three years, um, and then she caught wind of the fact that, um, Pearl S. Buck's novels were going to be made into a movie, The Good Earth was going to be made into a movie, and that has a lot of Chinese characters in it, and so she lobbied really hard to get get cast in the lead role, which she did not get, <laughs> and instead it went to a white actor named Louisa Rayner, who uh. um, who won the Best Actor Oscar for her performance. Uh. So, you know, like, just stick the knife in and then turn it. <laughs> um, That's so awful. Yeah. I, I read that, and I was just like, how could people be so horrible? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the worst thing is just that, like, knowing that that still continues today. Um, yeah. And she sort of dealt with that particular disappointment by going and visiting her um, her father's hometown in China, and she was sort of away for a year. She just, you know, said, I'm getting out of here. She did have a contract to complete with Paramount Pictures, so she came back, made a bunch of B-string movies um, that didn't get a lot of, like, critical like, attention, but, um, she also got to play non-stereotypical roles, um, which the Chinese-American press, like, appreciated because, you know, 
while they weren't big roles, they were at least positive roles. As she continued to act, she continued to be political and, like, do good with the power she had. Eventually, she um, invested in a bunch of real estate in Hollywood, which, you know, good for her. The early 1950s, she starred in a detective series that was written specifically for her um, called The Gallery of Madame uh, Lu Xiong, which, like, was her birth name. I think I read somewhere that that was the first time that an Asian-American woman was like, had a leading role in a TV series, which was 1951. Um, wow. So, <laughs> at least she had that. She then, she was scheduled to play the role of Madame Liang in the film production of Rogers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song, which is a movie that maybe at some point we should read and, or watch and discuss. She was having a lot of health issues, and so she wasn't able to, participate in that production and she ended up dying in her sleep in February 1961 at the age of 56. Um, she had a heart attack and um, it was just two days after her final screen performance on the television show The Barbara Stanwyck Show. Uh, that's such a waste of talent. Yeah. yeah. I mean she was really good at this movie. <laughs> yeah I feel like going from our last movie which was stormy weather to this is just like oh the, these are all the additional extremely talented people who you didn't get to see much of because racism yeah who did on a me- side note yeah. <laughs> that is a little bit lighter <laughs> i just made a mental connection between this movie and freddie mercury that had not occurred to me <laughs> until i talked so until i mentioned that trivia to you have you seen the Bohemian Rhapsody music video? Uh, if I have, it's been a very long time. Why? What? What is this um, gem of trivia? <laughs> well, this is just me thinking this. I don't know if this is a real connection. I'm but sure it's real. I had occasion to watch this very recently <laughs> when I was at karaoke, uh-huh. <laughs> and the music video for Bohemian Rhapsody is just the whole band filmed in black and white, close-up shots with shadows across their faces and light like it's going through a veil. So it's basically they're on the Shanghai Express. So basically they're on the Shanghai Express pretending they're Marlena Dietrich, and I never put it together <laughs> until this moment. So <laughs> I feel like we should link to that somewhere. <laughs> um, we should, because if I had not just done karaoke, I would not have remembered that. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so... Tell me everything about Marlena Dietrich. Okay. So, this is not everything, because there (laughs) is a lot. Marie Magdalena Dietrich was born in 1901 in Schoenberg, which is now a part of Berlin. And her mother was from an affluent family who owned a jewelry and clock-making firm, and her father was a police lieutenant. And her family nicknamed her Lena, and she soon combined her first name with the nickname to be Marlena. Uh, She attended the Augusta Victoria Girls School from 1907 to 1917 and graduated from the Victoria Luisa Schule in Berlin in 1918. And she studied the violin and kind of got interested in the theater and art scene through that as a teenager. But she hurt her wrist and then could no longer pursue like being a professional violinist. Um, but by 1922, she had her first job, which was playing violin in a pit orchestra for the silent movies at the Berlin cinema. 
which I thought was pretty cool. And her earliest professional stage appearance was as a chorus girl on tour with Guido Theicher's Girl Cabaret, which was like a vaudeville-style show. Um, and she appeared in Rudolf Nelson's Reviews in Berlin. And in 1922, she auditioned unsuccessfully for the director Max Reinhardt's Drama Academy, but she ended up working in his theaters anyway as a chorus girl and playing small roles in dramas. And her film debut was a small part in the film The Little Napoleon in 1923. And then she met her husband, Rudolf Sieber, on the set of Tragedy of Love in the same year. And they were married um, in that year in Berlin. And she actually stayed married to him for the rest of her life, even though they, like... Wow. Basically were separated for most of it. (laughs) Like, they never got divorced. um, But they lived separate lives. And she had one child. Her daughter was Maria Elizabeth Sieber, who was born on December 13th, 1924. She continued to work on stage and in film, both in Berlin and Vienna during that, like, big, Mm -hmm. vibrant German film scene in the 1920s. Um, But she actually got more attention for her stage performances, particularly in, like, review-type shows. And... It was there that director Josef von Sternberg saw her and he gave her her breakthrough role of Lola Lola, the cabaret singer who caused the downfall of a respectable schoolmaster in The Blue Angel in 1930. Uh, That's the only other movie I've seen her in. Really? Yeah. That makes me feel so much better because I just assumed that you had seen, like, you know, so many movies with her in it and this is the first one I've seen, I think with her no and and that and so that movie it's a german movie they made it in german and english but it's primarily german and like the english version like everyone was kind of struggling with their with the language and stuff and it nobody really watches that one anymore but like that's the only thing i've seen so i've seen her in a german language movie (laughs) and um so that that movie, because she was a cabaret singer, she, it introduced her signature song, Falling in Love Again, which, of course, then I had to go and look up YouTube videos of her singing it. <laughs> <laughs> and she made use of that, like, husky voice, and it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1930, because The Blue Angel was, like, a huge international success, and Josef von Sternberg was, at this point, like, promoting her, He helped her get established in Hollywood, and she moved to the United States with a contract to Paramount Pictures. And the studio marketed her as the German answer to MGM's Swedish Greta Garbo. (laughs) Which is, like, in some ways I can see it, but I'm kind of like, no, these brands are very... Like, except for the eyebrows and the husky voices, very different brands. Yeah. I mean, I feel like... They marketed Greta Garbo. This is this is all coming back to Ingrid Bergman. Um, they marketed Greta <laughs> Garbo so well that, like, I think forever afterwards, they or for a particular period afterwards, they were like, we need to get the next Greta Garbo, the next Greta Garbo, the next Greta Garbo. So that when they got Ingrid Bergman, they were like, oh, another a, the next Swedish Ingrid Bergman, and Ingrid Bergman was like. No, there can only be one Swedish Greta Garbo, and I'm not plucking my eyebrows. So, <laughs> and rightly so. Yeah, slow your roll. <laughs> um, so in 
Yeah, well, and Greta Garbo, I think, maybe because of the movie we watched her in, it's like, I think of her as funny. Well, that was the kind only of. comedy, I think. Oh, maybe okay. she was in a couple of comedies, but, like, she was serious. But she also oh. was like, hey, guys, this isn't, like, I can't, I can't do this industry. Because she retired very, very young and lit the world on fire, so. She was smart. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, uh, Marlena Dietrich started six films directed by von Sternberg at Paramount between 1930 and 1935, and she developed this image as the glamorous and mysterious femme fatale, which is kind of all I know of her, too. Mm-hmm. Um, in Morocco in 1930, she was cast again as a cabaret singer. That's a very famous movie. Um, and it's best remembered for the sequence in which she performs a song dressed in a man's white tie and kisses another woman, which were both considered very provocative. And that earned her her only Academy Award nomination. Um, so after that movie, she was in Dishonored in 1931, Shanghai Express, and Blonde Venus, both in 1932. And she worked without von Sternberg for the first time in a few years in the dramatic drama Song of Songs in 1933, where she played a naive German peasant. And then she went back to working with Sternberg and collaborated again on The Scarlet Express in 1934 and The Devil is a Woman in 1935, although those were less commercially successful than the earlier ones. Um, So in the mid-1930s, she left paramount and she became one of the highest paid actors of the time but by the end of the 30s she was dubbed box office poison as so many of our favorites were because <laughs> <laughs> she went out of favor with the public uh-huh. and then she had more trouble getting work and during this time the nazi party approached her and attempted to lure her back to germany to do films for the third reich and she refused And she applied for American citizenship. And then she got that citizenship in 1939 um, and Hmm. um, gave up her German citizenship. Hmm. And throughout World War II, she was very politically active. Uh, She aided refugees. She was one of the first big stars to sell war bonds. Hmm. And she traveled all over entertaining the troops. I think especially with her cabaret background, that that was like a big... Um, part of her career and she received the Medal of Freedom in November 1947 for her extraordinary record entertaining troops overseas during the war and she said that that was her proudest accomplishment and she was also awarded the Legion of Honor by the French government for her wartime work dang I know (laughs) Um, and she kept performing on film in the 40s and 50s but in smaller roles and then she switched almost entirely to the stage and cabaret again for the remainder of her career. And when she was in her 60s and 70s, her health declined. She survived cervical cancer, um, but she suffered from poor circulation in her legs. And she became increasingly dependent on painkillers and alcohol. Mm. And for the final decades of her life, she withdrew from public eye. People even wanted to do a documentary about her, and she said she would do it, but they couldn't film her. Like, she didn't want people to see her anymore. Huh. And on May 6, 1992, she died of renal failure at her flat in Paris when she was 90. Wow. So she still lasted a long time. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the like latter part of her life was a very happy one, but she did live a long time. And I just, I find her fascinating to watch. I just think she, she has such an interesting face. I like that sort of androgynous mm -hmm. thing she has going on. Mm -hmm. And I like her voice and everything. Like, I just thought she was so cool. Like, the whole movie, I was like, I want to be Marlene. I both, like, <laughs> love her and want to be her. Like, I was like, <laughs> like, she's just so glamorous and, like, slinky in this. And, I, I mean, it's kind of, like, the opposite of, of myself. <laughs> like, the way that she moved. And I was just like, how does one become Marlene Dietrich? Yeah. So, do you want to get into it? This was your first Dietrich film, you mm -hmm. said. Yeah. So I didn't really know what to expect, and I, I, yeah, I had sort of this this sense of her as being, you know, like, slinky and husky-voiced and seductive, um, and I think those expectations were fulfilled, but she was a better actor than I thought she was going to be, and, like, it was a better movie than I thought it was going to be. It was, like, better in so many ways, including that, like, the minister ended up, like, not being as much of a bigot as he started out being. Yeah, I was surprised. I didn't know that much about this movie going into it. Mm -hmm. I had read, like, a sentence or two. And I was expecting it to be something other than what it was, but I was like, oh. In a lot of ways, I liked the roles of the women in the movie, mm -hmm. and it, it felt like... It was turning a lot of the, like, normal tropes on their head mm -hmm. of, you know, who were the good people and who were the bad people. Mm -hmm. And I was actually shocked that the couple got together in the end. I know. Yeah. Like, that was I did not think that was going to happen at all. I was like, this is, this is a movie where, like, she's going to sacrifice herself for the dude. He's never going to figure it out, and they're not going to be together. He's not going to be mm -hmm. able to get past his hang-ups about her, like, other sexual relationships. Because, like, mm -hmm. I've never seen another movie from this time where it would be that explicit, and then they would get together. I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was shocked, too, that, like, at the beginning, you know, there's these... There's these, you know, white people like this, uh, like, boarding house keeper who, you know, is sort of, she's kind of snitty, and you immediately get the sense that we're supposed to think that she's just, like, ignorant and, like, an idiot, and, you know, the, the housekeeper comes in to, like, talk to these other women because she hears their gramophone going, and these, these two, like, courtesans are like, you know what, we don't, basically, like, we don't want your kind here. And Anna Mae Wong's character goes, I don't, she, I, I wrote this line down. She says, I don't know the standard of respectability you require in your boarding house. And the way that she's delivered it was like, totally, like, that was a burn. I am getting the message that, like, she's not the hero of this movie. <laughs> in general, like, all of the white respectable people were bad. And I think we were supposed to think of Mm -hmm. Or at least, like, not, they weren't the people mm -hmm. who kind of had, like, the moral center of the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. It was, you, like, they weren't likable, and I don't think we were supposed to identify with them. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, like, to hear what you thought about what the movie had to say about race and racism, because it seemed like 
a lot of those white respectable characters were being like very openly racist. Mm -hmm. And I, it almost felt like the movie was saying like, these people are all racist and you shouldn't like them. But yeah, it was like ridiculing uh, these like openly racist people, even though there were some like, like low key Werner Oland who I like had to look up again because I knew he was a white guy, but I needed to like remind myself of who this guy was. And it turns out he's, he is an uber white guy. He's from Sweden. <laughs> like, you don't get much whiter than that. So white. With quote-unquote, like, Asian uh, features. So he just got cast in all the Asian roles. But, you know, like, there's some moment where he says, like you, like you referred, you know, he referred to earlier, where, like, he doesn't, you know, he's half white, half Chinese, and he doesn't know how he feels about having the white blood, you know, and that, he sort of says it, and it's sort of a, like, he's not, like, openly ridiculed for, he's grappling with it. Can't be grappling with it too much, I guess, because he's the, it turns out he's the commander of the, like, revolution. Yeah. (laughs) The rebel army, like, he's got enough of a hold on it to be like, this is what I believe in, but, like, he doesn't die in the end. He's like... Or I guess he does die in the end, but he doesn't die in the end because, you know, because he has Asian blood, he dies because he's an asshole. Yeah, I think the part of the movie that, well, at one point I wrote, this is a bleak world for women (laughs) in this movie. And it, it felt almost like modern to me and how dark it was. Mm -hmm. You know, these women are getting by with sex and and then everyone hates them for it and mm-hmm. treats them terribly. Yeah. <laughs> and then the part that bothered me the most was that that they had to have the woman of color be raped. Yeah. Because like they would not have the white woman mm-hmm. be raped by well they probably wouldn't have the white woman be raped at all, but they definitely would not have it be by a non-white person. Mm-hmm. So, like, she gets away, and then they're like, well, we're just gonna, like, now we're gonna take this Chinese woman up here, and that that's, mm-hmm. that's gonna happen. And nobody cared except for Madeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by the same token, it's the, it's the Asian woman who, like, becomes the murderer, and which, like couldn't have we couldn't suggest that uh, madeline is the murderer she's a white lady so yeah and did you so what was your take on the murder i mean it could have been a combination of these things but did you think she was murdering him because he raped her or did you think she was murdering him as a political act it seemed to me like it was a maybe a combination of the two like from whatever angle uh, you looked at it, he deserved to die, and, uh, and killing him was the right thing to do. Yeah, it seemed like, to me, it seemed like it was a little of both. That, like, she was sort of taking some power back. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I felt for her, because I was like, you both have the trauma of the assault, and then the trauma of killing someone. hmm And you're all alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't even really... Resolved that she, it was just like, oh, okay, she got off the train. Bye. (laughs) She got off the train. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
it seemed really terrifying to be there in that time during that political upheaval for mm-hmm. both like them having to get off the train twice yeah. in unfamiliar places mm-hmm. and like once get hassled by the government and then the next time by the rebel army but also just going through those towns where it was so like the one scene where the train was like passing through the town and there was like barely room for the train to get through. Yeah, it was terrifying. It was, why is this like this? <laughs> I mean, I guess in some ways it it like made me think about like how when like the interstate goes through, you know, neighborhoods or towns right now or when it's slated to, they just raise the whole neighborhood and it's just like, you know, obliviates, you know, primarily communities of color. Um mm-hmm. And at least, like, in this, like, situation, there's, like, those communities have not been raised, but you just have a train going through, right through your neighborhood without any protective barriers or anything. And it apparently goes slow enough because of the knows that there might be a cow and some chickens on the tracks. <laughs> that poor cow's ribs were sticking out so far. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, what did you think of the Doc character? Mm, he seemed surprisingly modern, I guess. Like, he that he didn't reject Madeline completely because, you know, she, she left him and then became a, a courtesan, a, a coaster. Um, <laughs> seemed to, like, live by his heart, kind of, where he was like, well, I know this isn't the right thing. Um, it was also kind of badass that he was... Um, like, on this train so we could go operate on a, like, paralyzed guy. Like, that's why he was taking the train, was to, like... Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I think you have, like, a kinder read on him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Because I just... He, he like, was also so was, obnoxious. like... The, yeah, well, yeah, I was gonna say, like, he's also proof that, like, white men haven't changed in a hundred years, but, like... Yeah. Yeah, but, and he was, he was just so self-righteous and judgmental of her for 95% of the movie. Again, I (laughs) say, white men haven't changed very much in on Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true. (laughs) Although, so, you know how their explanation of why they broke up was that she tested him Mm -hmm. and he didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Like I know people who do those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and it is, I don't, I don't want to, uh, purport gender stereotypes, but it's always the woman who is testing the man. Yeah. Probably realistically. She just like decided she wanted to like live her life. And he was like, no, you can't live your life the way that you want to live it. You have to live the way I want to live. I want you to live it. I just thought it was pretty great for this movie, though, that in the end he was like, I don't care. Yeah. That, you know, like, for that time period, for a guy to be like, you probably have had more sexual partners than me, and that's okay with me. Like, I feel like that wouldn't have been that common for his class. Yeah, it seems unusual. It seems very modern. Yeah, this this whole movie, I was like, this could be a movie that's so, like, we a lot of the racial things would hopefully be treated differently. Although, as you pointed out, it hasn't come that far. No. It's more a reminder of what hasn't changed. Yeah. I mean, that that was the big deal with Crazy Rich Asians. That mm-hmm. When that came out, it was like, oh, it's a movie and the cast is predominantly Asian. 
are people going to go see the... It was literally, will people go see this movie? Yeah. Which, answer, yes. In <laughs> droves. In droves. And watch it on repeat. But, like, the fact that we're still asking those questions is ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, one of this... I don't know if this totally counts as trivia or not, but when I was researching the film, I looked at just, like, background stuff. And one of the things I read is that even most of the extras in the movie were white. Oh. So, not all of them, but, like... Yeah. Most most of the actors in the whole film were white and like playing Asian. So Great. Yep. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope they were all Swedish. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do? But give my heart to you. Um, so I feel like we need to spend some time talking about the costumes. Yes. Can we please? Um, because like probably a third of my notes are just about Marlena Dietrich's outfits. I wrote, and in every scene she's in a different fabulous robe. Also, she has like feathers. She's got furs. She's got like every animal type cloak you would want. Yeah, I mean, like... She's got veils. Yeah, just, like, looking at her clothes, it's like, this seems... She's got a good gig. Um, I... I... My only note, to be honest, about, like, her appearance is just Marlena Dietrich's hair, and then I drew heart eyes. <laughs> it's like, it just... Oh. If I could yes. just have Marlena Dietrich's hair this whole movie, that would be fine. <laughs> oh, it was gorgeous. Absolutely. And, like... There was one scene where she had it sort of half pinned back, mm-hmm. and it just it just looked fabulous. Like she looked amazing in this movie in every shot. Like there was not a single shot where it wasn't like this is one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seemed very clear that every outfit that she was wearing the whole time that they are on this train was like was meant to like showcase the fact that she's gorgeous and. Beautiful and has great hair. Yeah, after watching this, and I feel like this often happens when I'm watching movies for the podcast, I feel like I need to rethink my entire style. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, the, like... My lifestyle is fairly casual, and I feel like I need stuff that I can, like, go out and get in the mud in, and, Mm -hmm. like, you know whatever get dirty not like nothing precious and then i watched stuff like this or um when we watched dial m for murder and like saw grace kelly and i was like these women look so sophisticated i don't see anyone looking like this anymore where are my white hermes clubs like <laughs> what am i doing wrong where are your life? feather boas i mean really where are my feather boas <laughs> where are my cloche hats with the veils <laughs> so i might need to Redo the wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Get your maid to work on that. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Uh, Should we talk social justice? I think so. I don't know if this is the right place to... We just want to, like, elbow this in. But how did you like the fact that the housekeeper smuggled her dog onto the train? Um, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the funniest part was they were like, you don't have any animals in there, do you? And then, like, five, five minutes later, later, she's taking... <laughs> yeah. She's like, I don't hurt my dog. Why did you think that you were, like, you didn't have to file the rules? Because you're Although, a white lady. like, legit, legit, I would do that. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, because when you saw what the steerage was like, I was like, this is not a place for a dog. No. Like, where they were storing everything. I was like, this dog's just pooping all over the place in here. <laughs> no. All kinds of animals pooping all over the place. <laughs> yeah, so let's not... So you're saying that the, it was not social justice for the dogs. That's right. No justice for the dogs. What other elements of social justice do we think came up in this movie? Well, definitely colonialism, mm-hmm. which I don't think that the movie was on the right side of. No, absolutely not. And I think they sort of missed an opportunity because, like, you know, really the rebel army, like, they were the enemies in this movie, but they they were fighting colonial rule. Yeah. That would have been sort of the good guys. And the fact that Anime Wong's character kills, like, I would have thought that she might have more complex feelings about the government and stuff. Right. Which she, like, probably authentically did, but because, or, like, that character would have, if it had been an authentic character, that character probably would have had more authentic, uh, more complicated feelings, but because it was, or an Asian woman character, you know, it was just totally flattened out and not considered. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I thought was kind of social justice in a way, was just the undermining of the social and class norms. Mm-hmm. With, with the reversal of the characters, yeah. you know, who was good, who was bad, who had moral agency and who didn't. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, they both, both of the women still seemed like fairly well off. So I don't know if they would have still been considered like of a higher class or not. Yeah. What struck me was that, you know, even though, you know, they poo-pooed them and looked down upon these two women, like... When push came to shove, Melinda Dietrich's character was apparently the only character that actually spoke French and could translate for the French character, which means that she, like, made friends with this, like, French serviceman um, or officer or whatever, whoever that French guy was. Um, And so, which, like, you know, I was counting and I was like, that means she speaks at least four languages because we're assuming that, I mean, I was assuming that her character speaks German, speaks English, speaks French, and, you know, speaks at least one Chinese dialect since she lives there and has probably, like, I'm assuming Chinese clients or whatever. To me, that shows a lot of intellectual cachet. Yeah. Maybe partly due to the fact that that she's basically a whore. But, like, (laughs) Bush came to shove. That was what was useful. Yeah. And I was trying to, like, I actually was looking up sort of the different, saying she's a courtesan or a coaster. I was like, well, how does that compare to being, like, you know, standard prostitution? Mm -hmm. It really is, there isn't really a difference except that it's high-end clients mm-hmm. basically so which i wasn't totally clear on i was like well it's because i sometimes i read like books where people are like there'll be a long-term mistress for like one person yeah and that person like kind of takes care of them and i was like well is that the same thing that doesn't feel like the same thing no. well and then there was the whole we, we sort of mentioned in passing that this 
missionary person minister character who at the beginning is like, oh, I can't be in the same train car as, you know, these whores, basically. And then at the end, when mm-hmm. she he realizes that Madeline basically trades places with this man that she's in love with and says to Chang, like, don't blind this Doc Harvey. Take me instead and, like, basically, you know, take me wherever you, you want to take me, but, like, leave him alone. She, like, comes back to the train to, like, get her stuff or whatever, and the person is like, you know, like, what, <laughs> what's happening? Why are you going with him? Like, I gotta save your soul or whatever. And he, like, figures out or she tells him that, like, she's basically, like, made the switch and then, like, I'm going with him to save because otherwise he was gonna, like, blind Harvey. And the person, like, suddenly realizes that she's, like, not just a whore, she's a good person. <laughs> Which I thought was, like, a, I don't know, I was kind of surprised at that, like, character arc that he, like, so willingly was like, oh, oh my god, like, that's a morally positive decision to make and way to go you. It was like, I felt kind of gross about it, but also... Yeah, yeah I was surprised he made such an abrupt mm-hmm. shift, mm-hmm. but then when I read about the code stuff... yeah. I thought, I wondered at what point they had had to make that change. Because he was such a jerk in the beginning Mm -hmm. that I was like, well, if he was originally supposed to be sort of a complex character like this, I feel like they would have toned that down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, because I was was just surprised that he made that turn. Um, It's like... Who would have thunk someone can have an undesirable job and also be a decent person? (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Well, do you think this movie passes the Bechdel test? I think it does, because of these two characters, Hope and Madeline. And the housekeeper, too. They have, I mean, I guess they're maybe obliquely talking about, like, sex work, but they're not talking about, like, romance all the time. No, yeah, I think it definitely passes. The conversation is just kind of like, oh, you're on this train, me too. Like, that's... (laughs) And, like, normal stuff. And then they... This is not, like, a damsel in distress type of film. Like, these are strong women. It's not, like they're they're kind of waiting for someone else to do something they take action yeah and they basically like move the plot yeah so it was good i would re- recommend it to other people mm-hmm. yeah and I, it, it, yeah it was surprisingly hard to find a way to watch it so i don't know if it's like out of favor now but i think it's on a bunch of lists as one of those like movies you must see before you die or like top 100 films kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i was surprised so, at how much i like me too maybe we like marlena dietrich or we just like movies about trains i don't know we do like or movies about trains. <laughs> when it started, I was like, oh, I love train movies. And I was like skipping around the room. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, oh, I wrote at one point, this is a very different train movie from The General. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Which, truth. <laughs> yes. Although, like, kind of similar that, like, the people who are supposed to be the bad guys are like, wait a second, actually, I feel like they're the good guys, maybe. Like, history as history might show. That is true. <laughs> but there was a sad lack of slapstick <coughs> true. in this movie. 
Yes, any movie would be improved by slapstick. <laughs> um, so, Hill, what's our next movie? Did we actually rate this movie? Oh, no, we didn't rate it. Okay, you go first. <laughs> I think I would probably give it a four. I feel like you're the Paula of the, pal- of the podcast. <laughs> and, I'm the- and I'm, I don't know. I hope I'm not the Simon. (laughs) No, I mean, I agree with you. I think I would give it a four Mm -hmm. because it was really good. And like, it was a beautiful piece of film. I would definitely rewatch it. Um, It made me want to change my entire lifestyle. (laughs) And it genuinely surprised me Mm -hmm. too, which I enjoyed. So, all right. So now what's our next movie? (laughs) Um, Our next movie is Mildred Pierce. From strong women to strong women. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day. Thank you.